Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. On the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Heading to turn number four. Here's Jim Schultz. As the old old saying, here he comes. There he goes. And you can hear the roar of John Cuck as he went by. He's driving a good smooth race. Here's Paul. Jim Shelton with the call on the IMS radio network. Perhaps tipping the cap to our friend from the old radio days that we have played on Beyond the Bricks. Here they come, and there they go. And strangely enough, that kind of describes the month of May as here we are right on the cusp of the finale weekend, if you will. Carb Day Eve. And then, of course, the parade on Saturday, the driver's meeting and then the 106th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Good evening to you. My name is Jake Query. Mike Thompson is the other voice that you're about to hear on this program. Sam Rumsa is our writing mechanic. This is Beyond the Bricks, and this is the penultimate variation thereof for the 2022 month of May. Mike, first and foremost, uh, good evening to you. I know that you have been spending the better part of the day. If I'm not mistaken, you have covered every corner of the map of Marion County today, collecting memorabilia in preparation for the memorabilia show, correct? That is correct. I was uh, Today I was at the Ripley auction, and, and they those guys do a great job every year putting on an auction um, over in Broad Ripple. So yes, I've spent almost all day in Broad Ripple at the uh, Ripley auction today, picking up memorabilia, getting ready for tomorrow's memorabilia show in Plainfield. And so the memorabilia show in Plainfield, as you had just heard in the advertisement there, vendors from really all over the country with memorabilia, involving the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the Indianapolis 500, and some of the personalities thereof. That's what this program does. We like to take memorabilia in the form of audio and bring it to you. I am very grateful for those of you who have listened throughout the course of the month, whether it be live or on podcast. And tonight we are going to talk about one of the great names, certainly, in the history of the race. Certainly hope you folks enjoyed hearing last night from some of the stars of the 50s. And tonight... Mike, what we're going to do is talk about a guy that I think the argument could be made very soundly that in the lifetime of the two of us, and certainly in the times that we have been going to the Speedway and to the Indianapolis 500, my first race in 1981, your first year out at the Speedway one year later, arguably the greatest resume and the most dominant performer in that time period from then to now the guy from Bakersfield, California. And, of course, Mike, we're talking about Rick Mears. Yeah, I mean, what an unbelievable career. So dominant and such a humble, likable, down-to-earth guy who's willing to give you his time. And and later on, we're going to hear one of my favorite answers I've ever gotten from a, a driver talking about, you know, one of his wins. Just just such a – you've talked to him, I know, Jake, and he's just, he's just so down-to-earth and so – so humble and so willing to give up his time. Rick Mears was born actually in Wichita, Kansas, back in 1951, December 3rd for that matter, before being raised essentially in Bakersfield. He moved to Bakersfield, California as a young boy. 
And, of course, when you think of Bakersfield, California, and I certainly think of it this way, I don't know whether or not this is completely accurate or not, but you're talking about a town to the east of Los Angeles and kind of more in the dry dirt areas of California, which would why, which is why it would be understandable that Rick Mears would have began his career in road racing. And then in 1976, Mike, an interesting thing happened when Bill Simpson's helmet company, one of the representatives there, said, you know what, there's a guy that people ought to take a look at here. And Bill Simpson said, well, how much do you think we should take a look at him? And they said, well, he's pretty darn good. And that really was kind of Rick Mears' breakthrough, and the reality is, Mike, it did not take long before Rick Mears really catapulted himself into the public conscious of racing nationally as opposed to just regionally. No, that was a huge break he got from Bill Simpson, getting that opportunity to run at uh, Ontario. A uh, huge, huge break for him, and he'll tell you that, and then and then getting a chance to drive uh, with our show guy in the, in the Pink Eagle. Uh, one of his his favorite cars to talk about is that Archugai Eagle. But you're right. I mean, uh, right out of the box, Rick Mears was quick. There's no doubt about it once he got his chance. I think a lot of people forget about the fact that Rick Mears, because of the fact that people think and focus on his wins, his pole position in terms of qualifying. You know, you're talking about somebody here, Mike, that right out of the gate, you know, oftentimes we see drivers that Gilles DeFerrin comes to mind. Emerson Fittipaldi comes to mind. Guys that became winners at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Buddy Lazier comes to mind. But you forget if you go back and look at their early years that there were growing pains or learning curves that had to take place even for the best of the best in terms of qualifying, practicing, finding speed. For Rick Mears, from the time that he arrived at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in 1978, Mike, Speed and qualifying were not a challenge for the kid from Bakersfield. Yeah, I mean, he missed the show in 77 with the uh, with Archer Guy's car in at, at IMS. He missed the show, just didn't have the speed to, to make the race, really. But he was he was good other, you know, other places. Uh, then got a chance with, uh, you know, driving McLaren, uh, a McLaren for, um, you know, Theodore Racing. And then once he got hired with, with Roger Penske, speed was never an issue again, I don't right. think. <laughs> well, then, Bill Simpson, it, I mean, listen, he was so good that when Bill Simpson, you know, sold his car to Art, you know, the condition was, hey, you got you to gotta keep Rick Mears in it because they saw something in him, right? The car just didn't have the speed. And then, like yeah, you oh, mentioned, yeah. all of a sudden, then, boom, he was off and running. Yeah, once, once, uh, Rick, once Rick got that opportunity and Roger Penske told him, hey, meet me up at the farmhouse, and there's the famous farmhouse that's right outside of Michigan International Speedway, and, and Roger Penske told him, you know, meet me at the farmhouse, and, and they, made, they made a deal. And once they made a deal, it was, it was a great deal for Rick because, you know, he wasn't being asked to be the lead driver because they had other lead drivers. You know, they, they, had, they had other people. Um, you know, Mario was kind of doing a part-time schedule with, with running Formula One and things like that. So, you know, it was a great opportunity for, for Rick to just, you know, learn under some, some masters and, and learn, learn, you know, learn how to qualify, learn how to, you know, race craft and things like that and not have to be thrust into, you know, you're the number one guy right out of the gate. And so I think that really helped Rick. And I mean, like you say, it wasn't long before he was winning races. I mean, he was rookie of the year, obviously, in a, in a co-rookie of the year situation with with Larry Rice. And then he won his first race at Milwaukee not that long after that. Oh, so, you know, he was a winner right out of the box pretty much in 1978. 
He was the first 200-mile-an-hour qualifying rookie in Indianapolis 500 history, as Mike had mentioned in 1978, in going on to share the co-rookie of the year award with Larry Rice. And, you know, look, that was a race where he had some issues. I mean, eventually his engine went out on him, but his his helmet was loose. I mean, there were some, some growing pains for certain in terms of the race itself. But, Mike, as you'd mentioned, he goes and he wins at Milwaukee a couple of weeks later. Then he goes and wins in Atlanta. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know what? This guy's going to be a full-time driver come hell or high water. He needs to be in a car full-time. And that's exactly what he was in 1979, of course, running with Roger Penske. And there he is in his sophomore campaign of starting the Indianapolis 500. And lo and behold, Rick Mears gets number one. So already, Rick Mears is a 500 champion. And again, in just his second outing, the Gould Charge was the car. The famous car number nine for Rick Mears in 1979. Here's the guy that would become known as the Rocket, talking about 500 win number one. Well, at Indian 79, you know, I, I think one of the main things I remember about it and what made it, you know, a little bit different. First off, it was the first win, which makes it special. It'll always have a special place by being the first win. But uh, I think one of the main things about it is it happened so early in my career. The fact that, uh, you know, my second time there, I didn't really appreciate it. I didn't really understand it. And it didn't really impress me that much. You know, it was, uh, it was another race because I hadn't been in it that long. So in that respect, you know, it is not probably held as high as, as the other wins, except for the fact that it was the first one. Now, Mike, one of the things that I think you just touched on that I want to get further into, for any driver, the ability, and Rick Mears clearly had the ability, but the access, if you will, the the ability to be able to go with veteran drivers, veteran teammates, early in one's career, learn from them, bounce things off of them, see their mistakes and learn from them, have them notice your mistakes. Rick Mears, Mike, and I want you to elaborate on this a little bit, he had access to some pretty, pretty elite-level senseis, if you will, from the time he arrived at Indy. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, he has Bobby Unser as a teammate. He has Mario Andretti as a teammate. Um, You know, obviously, he's got Roger Penske as a team owner. These are great building blocks for Rick. And again, it's what's great for Rick is he doesn't have to come in. And, you know, there are certain people that you talk about that have to come in as the lead driver right away. You know, you're, you're, you're the number one guy. And, and Rick never had to do that. Rick was able to learn from these, you know, veteran talents uh, and pick up things from all these guys. And, you know, with the guys like Derek Walker on the, on the crew and things like that. And, and, and just continue to soak up all this knowledge over time. And, you know, and, and Rick was so good everywhere. And we talked, you were just talking a little bit about the end of the 78 season. L- let's not forget what a great road racer Rick Mears was. I mean, he went to Silverstone at the end of the year. I think he finished second at Silverstone and then one at Brands Hatch. I mean, Rick Mears was a great road, road, road course driver. And I don't think he gets a 1980. Uh, you're right. From, he was from everybody. Go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. 
No, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 1980, you, you had mentioned, I mean, he was – and again, Mike, what's so funny about it is we think of him as this oval specialist at Indianapolis, but to your point, you know, it was left and right-handed turns in combination that got him on the map, right? Just in terms of his ability to be able to show his skill set from a versatility standpoint. He wins the race in 1979, comes back in 1980, and a good solid run in 1980 for that matter. Rick Mears started on the outside of row number two. He brought the car home, again, the Gould Charge, one spot higher, just one lap off of the lead lap. Then 1981, I had mentioned it was the first year that I attended the Indianapolis 500. That's completely inconsequential to this show. However, the one thing that I remember as an eight-and-a-half-year-old in the paddock was saying to my dad, why is that guy dancing? And it seemed like a flippant comment or a sophomoric one for an eight-and-a-half-year-old at the time. But in reality, what it was, of course, was that Rick Mears had a pit fire with invisible flames and got out of the car and was jumping around in a fury in 1981. And that pit fire ended Rick Mears' day. Fortunately, it was not one that, I mean, you know, listen, it was a terrifying, terrifying situation. And it ended Rick Mears' day where he ended up finishing in the 30th position. He had qualified 22nd. Bobby Unser got to win that day. That one is a controversy we've talked about on this program. But what you again had was perhaps Rick Mears with the disappointment of that day, but the access the ability, the talking to Bobby Unser, who drove, of course, in the Norton Spirit, also in a Penske-Cosworth, and the relationship, perhaps just the learning of the young sponge, Rick Mears. Here is Roger Penske on that relationship between Bobby Unser and Rick Mears. You think about, he was there when Rick Mears was there, and I think that uh, he was a great coach for Rick, gave Rick a real opportunity to try to race against one of the best in the business, and to me, uh, that part of our team approach the foundation that Bobby gave us early in the years was probably one of the things that I'll never forget. Mike, you can only imagine, right? I mean, Bobby Unser, here he is, Bobby Unser coming in first in his final race after, by the way, coming in last in his first race. But the ability to maybe not even directly so, but just for Rick Mears, who is, and I think, Mike, one thing that we should touch on here the humility of Rick Mears, because for a lot of guys coming in and learning from an elder is not always the easiest thing to do, especially when you are kind of a hot shot young driver who won your second Indy 500. But Rick Mears is so humble that it would seem only natural that he would be able to listen and learn. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the kind of guy Rick Mears is. I mean, he's he's that type of person. He's, he's willing to give of himself. He's willing to share. I was actually listening to some audio tonight that I had actually never heard um, working on this, pulling some audio from this show. And he was very complimentary of Kevin Kogan when we were, you know, we, we've talked several times about Kevin Kogan. He was talking about Kevin Kogan as a teammate and, you know, talking about Kevin's strengths and weaknesses, but in a really positive way and, and the things that they worked really well together on. And it, that just shows you what kind of a great teammate Rick Mears was. Um, and so, totally a really humble guy and so accessible and and so one of the guys that i really enjoy interviewing because he's so willing to give of himself and rick mears comes back in 1982 and all of a sudden he does what he becomes known for becoming a qualifying master i'm talking about when it comes to rick mears he finished in second but he started on pole that would become a theme over the course of his career at indianapolis but before the race took place before the official running of the 66th Indianapolis 500-mile race, Rick Mears talked about qualifying in the race. 
I don't know. The qualifying is not that important to me. I go more for the race itself. And, uh, you know, it's, and even even leading the race, uh, the first part of the race doesn't mean that much to me. The the main, I don't care if I only lead one lap as long as it's the last one. That's the one I want. And uh, that's the way we've played it most of the time. Stay back. Let everybody run their pace. Keep them in sight. Uh, run a pace on the car that feels nice and uh, feels like it'll get to the end. And that's the hardest part, finding a pace that is fast enough to win the race yet slow enough to finish. And uh, that's the part you have to work the hardest at. It is something that Rick Mears, once he became Obi-Wan Kenobi for other young drivers, would make known on the regular basis. To finish first, first you must finish. And he managed to do both a lot more over the course of his career, including just about 24 months after that soundbite. That is next in the trajectory upward, the career of Rick Mears on this episode of Beyond the Bricks. Before any race, Rick Mears has a lot on his mind, his car, his competition, but not his motor oil, because he uses Pennzoil. In all his years of racing with Pennzoil, he's never had an oil-related breakdown, which explains why Rick Mears isn't just one of the fastest men in racing history, but one of the smartest as well. Pennzoil, the standard of protection since 1889. Now, during Pennzoil's Indy Winter Sale, get 20 cents back on every quart or $3 back on every case of quality Pennzoil. Mike, I think that says it pretty well, to be honest with you, because Rick Mears, as we left you winning in 1979 and then talking about 1982, landing the pole position, he was entering into an era where, and this is what to me is interesting, Mike, Rick Mears is one of those guys that became kind of synonymous with sponsors, but yet, depending on your age, there are probably any of three different sponsors with which you could associate Rick Mears but certainly when it comes to Pennzoil and that familiar paint scheme, to a lot of people, that's the one that perhaps he might be the most associated. It really is an interesting thing to think about, the fact that for some, I mean, I think of Rick Mears immediately with the Gould Charge because that's the first car I saw him drive. But then there's a, you could definitely make a case that the car is the most associated with Rick. And then, and then the, you know, his, his last win is in a different car. So uh, you're right. I mean, there's so many different choices there. Um, but I'm partial to the Gould Charges because that was my first car I saw him in. But but the iconic Pennzoil and all those great commercials he did for the, you know, for, for Pennzoil over the years, he's definitely associated with Pennzoil. So 1983 was when he first got into a Pennzoil machine. And once again, Mears does what exactly that advertisement said. He shows to be a smart race car driver. Starts in the front row, ends in the front row, comes in the third position. Then 1984 rolls around. Again, a front row qualifier was Rick Mears. Again, Pennzoil. And again, finishes in the front row. But this time, with no one in front of him. There are twin checkered flags waiting for Rick Mears of Bakersfield, California. He raises his hand in the air as he screams over the line. Rick Mears has won his second Indianapolis 500-mile race. I think the thing that we are going to learn in looking back at Rick Mears, Mike, and it's interesting. When you look at other drivers, the one, and there are many areas with Rick Mears, to me, what is fascinating is you can look at Rick Mears as almost like this microcosm of those versus which he competed. And by that, I mean he kind of carried with him 
the best attributes of a number of different drivers. I think he had the smarts of an Al Unser of, of how to know when to go and when to back off a little bit or when to baby the car and put himself in position to make sure that his speed was there when he most needed it. I think he had the fiery competitiveness of an A.J. Foyt, even though it was understated. I think Mears knew when he walked into a garage what he wanted out of his car, and his team knew what it was that he wanted. But then he also had a gentlemanly nature about him, Mike, that I think his team wanted to be able to respond to him and deliver what he wanted, not only because his skill set warranted that, but also because I think they knew that Rick Mears was one driver, uh, perhaps more than any other, that was aware of the fact that Rick Mears couldn't accomplish anything without those other guys working on the race car. And I think that made for the ultimate team combination during his career. Oh, I agree with all that. And, and I mean, he's, he was a master tactician that I don't think he gets enough credit for being a master tactician. Um, he was, you're right. He was, a, he was another Al Unser in the strategy department. And I think we'll hear a little bit of that later, but I don't think he gets enough credit for being a master strategist. And what I think is also interesting is he won the 500 in different ways. You know, I mean, he won in 79 when he was just, he, you had, like you said, to be first, you have to first finish. And, and Al Unser dropped out and Bobby had trouble at near the end and, and Rick was there to win. And then in 84, he wins by two laps. So, you know, that's, that's just him running away and, and, and dominating. You know, he led over 115, I think 118, something like that laps that year. And so he, he won in different ways, and then we'll get to 91 later, and, and then won in a really dramatic way there. So he won in a number of different fashions, which I think is even more fascinating as well. After winning in 84, of the next three years, car issues dropped him out in two of the three years. The outlier being 1986, and 86 is one of them that was fascinating because, Mike, that was, of course, the fabulous finish. You had three Americans right there poised to try to win in the end in 1986. Bobby Rahal, Kevin Kogan, and Rick Mears. And, of course, we know what happened. Kevin Kogan had the lead. Bobby Rahal got past him. Bobby Rahal turned in the fastest lap of the race on lap 200. And so that denies Rick Mears his third win in 1986. But nonetheless... Uh, that was one of those that you looked at it and, again, smart driving there at the end. One of the unusual circumstances, Mike, it was not often that somebody could outrun Rick Mears at the end of the race, but credit to Bobby Rahal because that's exactly what he did. Yeah, I mean, people may not remember that Rick led with less than 15 laps to go in that race and, and ended up third, but uh, just handling kind of went away a little bit there at the end on Rick. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, Bobby was handling a little better and, and Kevin, Kevin was really quick as well. So, but an, another top three finish there for Rick as well. Uh, tremendous effort. And again, 1987, we talked about Al Unser wins that race again, gremlins get to Rick Mears and he has denied the opportunity to finish the race, but those Pennzoil colors stuck by him. 1988 Rick Mears, and perhaps what could be, and Mike, this is what's interesting about it. You could make arguments, as you talked about, in terms of the different ways in which he led races. You could certainly make the argument that maybe other years he, he was more dominant over the majority of the race. Certainly in 88, Danny Sullivan, a lot of people thought that could have been his race. But Rick Mears started in the pole position, and when it came down to it, he made sure that his car was ready for the final stretch of the race. 
Yeah, I mean, Rick, after Danny dropped out, I think there really wasn't anybody to to um, give Rick any trouble, I don't think. I mean, Emerson was fairly good that day in 88 after Danny dropped out. But um, if Danny, you know, with Danny out of the race, really Rick had the car to beat after that. Here's how it sounded this from the 72nd running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race, May 29th of 1988. 1979, 1984, and in 1988, Rick Mears is going to win. And to call the finish, although it is rather subdued, here is our chief announcer, Lou Palmer. And we are watching now without the drama, but with the emotion as the pace car heads down, picks up the checkered flags, not intended for it, but for Rick Mears, hand high in the air. Lou Palmer on the IMS radio network as Rick Mears becomes a three-time winner of the Indy 500. And then an interesting thing happens, Mike, for Rick Mears. You know, we talked about A.J. Foyt and his pursuit of number four and all the buzz that went into that. We talked about Al Unser on this program and the fact that Al Unser, when he won his fourth, it was not expected. There wasn't the microscope on, is this the year for Big Al? Because it was unexpected when he won it in 1987. For Rick Mears, though, Mike, the microscope was there because he was still, he was so young to be a three-time winner, and you didn't have the stretch, the the repeated attempts for number four, the coming up short like you had for other drivers, and the microscope was there, and I remember, I mean, in that time, you know, immediately following, is Rick Mears going to become a four-time winner? But it did feel almost like it was a certainty, Mike, that it was eventually going to happen. Oh, agree. And and it was going to happen fairly quickly. I mean, people I, I remember after he got his third, people were like, OK, he's going to get a, he's going to get his fourth and maybe a fifth. You know, he may be the guy who gets five because, as you said, he was fairly young. And although he had been injured in, at San Air in, in 84, um, you know, he he came back and and was good obviously it wasn't that that had put him aside where he wasn't able to do it anymore he had, he had just won in 1988 so uh you're right i mean it was it was not if but when when will rick get his fourth so 1991 as bob jenkins called it the diamond jubilee edition the 75th running of the great speed classic bob jenkins words on the ims radio network rick mears enters in the month itself in 1991 looking for win number four by the way, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Mike, that was my favorite pace car. Was that the Dodge Stealth in '91? I honestly wouldn't be or able. To, the I'm not much sorry. The a, Dodge I'm not Viper. Much used to you on the pace cars, so I am um, 99.999% certain that the Dodge Viper was the pace car on May 26th of 1991. But Rick Mears was the pole sitter. This time it was Marlboro that was the sponsor. And it's funny because, and the one thing that I noticed, Mike, in going back and looking at the 1991 Indianapolis 500 in an epic duel that we're about to hear, the one thing that I remember the most in watching that, and it's one of those little nuances that you don't realize until it's gone. And maybe I'm wrong here, Mike Thompson. Maybe they still have these, and I've missed it. Or maybe it was something that ABC did. But the low camera angle with the flower beds and the cars zipping past them and the flowers moving with the wind is one of those little subtleties that when I saw it, I got incredibly nostalgic for it. Now, my question for you is, am I hallucinating or are those no longer there? 
they're not, it's definitely not shot that way. Um, and in fact, you may have seen on Twitter a few months ago, I actually tweeted out, um, you know, bring back the flower beds and bring back the flowers, you know, moving in the breeze because of those flower bed shots, because I, I think it gives you not only, you know, the pretty, the flowers are pretty, but uh, it gives you a sensation of speed as the cars go by. So I always love the flower bed shots personally. When it came down to it in 1991, the Indianapolis 500 mile race was essentially a two horse race. Michael Andretti and Rick Mears. Rick Mears, of course, is looking for win number four. Michael Andretti looking for the first. Of course, we now know that would elude him. There was a restart coming after 186 laps of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. And what it led to with Rick Mears just in front of Michael Andretti was one of the great epic battles in the history of the greatest race in the world. The field comes off the fourth turn. The green flag waves. Here's the final 13 laps of the race. A drag race to turn number one. Rick Mears and Michael Andretti. Well, Rick Mears made a great move down low. He leads the way. About no, no. Andretti's got it going into the short shoot. He's a number two, and Michael Andretti's got the lead. And Rick looks to the inside. About a four, five, six car length coming off the second quarter. They head up the back stretch towards Larry Henry. A good start for Michael Andretti. A shootout over the final 13 laps. You have him down there, Larry. Well, Michael Andretti should be heavier. He took fuel on board, but Rick Mears is slower right now. About seven car lengths behind Michael Andretti trying to get his first Indianapolis 500 win. Michael Andretti through four running smooth. Rick Mears trying to reel him in. Coming down low, they head to the main straightaway, but it is still Michael Andretti and Rick Mears with a head toward turn one and Jerry Baker. Former co-rookie of the year, Michael Andretti. Now Mears goes to the outside and Rick may have him. They move into the short shoot. Rick Mears takes the lead. Jerry Baker on the call in turn number one as Rick Mears, in fact, did take the lead. The caution would later come out because of Mario Andretti on the track, but Michael Andretti in the restart was not able to get back Rick Mears, and Rick Mears ran away. He became a four-time winner of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Just a, one more turn to go. The crowd roaring. Rick Mears head toward number four. He's down the main straightaway. Here's Bob Jenkins. Rick Mears becomes the third four-time winner of the Indianapolis 500, winning the Diamond Jubilee Edition, the 75th running of this great speed classic. Bob Jenkins, the late great Bob Jenkins, on the call, one of his many, many great calls at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. The reality is for Michael Andretti, on lap 187, he led that race. But once Rick Mears took that lead back, and Rick Mears, of course, as we talked about, and I remember on the radio network, Rick Mears, the master, he was listed. Rick Mears knew when it was go time. Michael Andretti knew probably on lap 187 that perhaps it had all gone away from him. Here is the historian emeritus of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Donald Davidson, on Michael Andretti's reaction to that duel in 1991. I remember that even um, uh, there was a press conference. I don't remember what it was for, but Michael was there, and I made mention of the fact. And uh, as I turned to look at Michael, I mean, the, and this was like two, three, four years later, and he basically, you know, his eyes were wide, and he was sort of 
nodding his head around as if he was still in dismay, as if, in other words, I still can't believe that, you know? And uh, it just basically that it, it took the fight out of him. But um, Donald Davidson on that 91 finish. But what about Rick Mears, his recollections of that year in which he became a four-time winner? Well, sure, and then that's like, uh, you know, you always heard Michael say afterward, I don't know where he came up with that speed at the end of the race. Well, that's that's playing your hand. That's poker. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't going to show my hand till after the last stop. I saw he had a little understeer in his car, which is the safe way. And uh, so I thought, you know, if I show my hand before the last stop, because I wanted to get mine to where I knew exactly what I had before the last stop, so I wouldn't have to change anything at the last stop. Because if I have to change something at the last stop, I could go too far. I could tip it over. And now I'm in trouble. So if he's solid and he's leading and he's, he's got everybody covered all day, he's not going to risk making a change in that last stop. So I'm not going to let him know I've got him covered until after the last stop. And that's basically what happened. He kept it solid. You know, he didn't make a change. If I'd have shown my hand earlier, he'd have, he'd have taken a gamble and, and, and tried to put some more front wing in the car and tried to make the car a little quicker for the shootout at the end. But he thought he had me covered until after that stop. And But but then the, the passing back and forth, I knew he was going to pass me on the restart. I mean, that, that was a fact because I got, I got blocked a little bit by, um, it was, I forget, it was Al Jr. and... Uh, John Andretti, I think, in front of me. And I was drafting up behind whoever it was the one that was in front of me. And when I just as I got right to him and jumped out to go around him, he jumped out to go around the car ahead of him. Not through any fault. That's what he had to do. And the timing was that I had to lift to keep from hitting him. Now I jump over again. We got a three-car hole in the air, and that's just sucking Michael along big time. And he's always quick on restarts anyway. So I knew he was going by, and, and we aren't up to speed yet, so that means the groove is very wide in turn one. He could run anywhere. So I just went to the bottom and gave him the long way around, and, um, and then he entered too low to kind of block me, which helped me get the run back at him. If he had stayed up high and went through two, you know, the best line he could take, I might not have gotten to him the very next lap. It may have been the lap after. But um, And then when we came back to it, you know, round to one, he hesitated, didn't know which way I was going to go, and, and, and so he, he kind of froze and stayed in the middle, and that left the outside lane open. And I knew he had to understeer, so I was hoping he was going to have to go to the apron. And when I drove up beside him and I watched him, stayed on him, and when I saw him dive to the apron, then I knew that was going to help me keep the front end of the car enough to stay in the throttle. And from that point on, once we, once we cleared him, then I knew we had a good car. You know, And then as a matter of stay focused, no mistakes, and, and go, and, and, and we were good until... Mario calls the next shell on the next restart. <laughs> and of course, as we mentioned, that next restart that Mario caused, if you will, not enough for Michael Andretti, Rick Mears, a four-time winner. Mike, one interesting note somebody just sent me. Uh, hey, Jake, it might not be the easiest thing in the world to put flower beds on top of a safer barrier. I never thought of that. It's actually a very good point. I didn't think of that as well. I was trying to think. For some reason, I always felt like the flower beds were right on the outside of the catch fence, but I could be wrong on that. I I actually just thought of something as well while we were playing this audio tonight. I think that just thinking about this, because you mentioned the, the late, great Bob Jenkins, I think that Rick Mears is the only person who had three different chief announcers call his victories. He would have had uh, – he actually – 
Correct. He because had he three. Had Paul Page, Lou, Lou Palmer, Palmer, and Bob. And Bob Jenkins. I think he's the only one who had three different announce- chief announcers call his victories. I'll have to think about that for a second. That's good. That's it matter. That's got to be right, right? Although I, I think I think it is. It just popped in my head when you mentioned the late great Bob Jenkins. I was thinking. I was like, well, wait, because Paul did his first one when Paul then- returned, and fourteen and fifteen. Yeah, he would have had. He would not have had anybody that would have been able to have Mike and Mark. So I believe you are correct. Yeah, I think that's kind of fun. That's just kind of a fun thing that popped into my head while we were talking about this. All I know is Sam Rumps is having so much fun with it. He's jumping up and down, doing jumping jacks, telling me, "Jake, you got to get to a break." So we'll be back to be on the bricks. Rick Mears, the four-time winner of the Indianapolis 500, the subject matter of tonight's Beyond the Bricks. When you win four times at Indianapolis, the question is always going to be asked, what was your favorite? Rick Mears has been asked that a lot. 1979, 1984, 1988, 1991. Rick Mears once told me that the thing that he most enjoyed about that 1991 win was as he rolled his car towards Victory Circle, it was the first time that he stopped to observe each member of his team that was lined up to recognize and think about what each one of them had done to help get him to Victory Circle. And that was part of why he most appreciated that win in 1991. Also probably because it was 12 years removed from his first win in 1979 But Rick Mears, the question is, when you got the opportunity in IndyCar to right away drive for Roger Penske, does that come with it an expectation that sets an internal pressure that drives you just as much as the horsepower? Yeah, now there's no excuses. You know, I I felt the same thing when I first got in. But it's, it's what we want as a driver, you know, so... If I really struggled, then it, then I'd start thinking, oh, you know, this is this could be bad. But Roger was so good at taking pressure off of me in the early days. You know, I think he understood that I wouldn't let anybody, nobody could put any more pressure on me than I put on myself because I'm here to do the best job I can do anyway. So he didn't need to put any pressure on me. But he, he helped relieve it by saying, hey, you know, you're new. You need laps, you need experience, which he's dead right. You know, I, I don't care who you are. There's no substitute for seat time. And he said, I've got, I've got Mario, I've got Sneva, I've got Bobby, you know, to, to stand on a gas. You go out there, you go out there and get laps. You know, get comfortable, learn what you need to learn at your pace. So he, he took the pressure off immediately, which allowed me then, which he understands, allowed me to focus more on that and not be worrying about something else. Then I could put all my focus in what I was doing, which helped me learn quicker. So uh, he just understands how all that works. In school, you have the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And in racing, you have the three P's. The other voice you hear on this show tonight, Mike Thompson, talked with Rick Mears about exactly that trilogy, the three P's. 
I know it's been said that the, the really the success of Pens Team Penske is the three P's, Roger himself, preparation, and people. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, absolutely. Tell me about the people and, and how critical that is to the success of Team Penske. Well, I mean, it's, you know, the old saying, you're only as strong as your weakest link, you know, is very true. And, and so having good people in every position uh, to, to create a strong, a strong chain all the way through is key. And, uh, and Roger has always understood that right from the, you know, the, from day one. Um, but the, the, the main thing, part of having good people is keeping good people. And keeping good people, a part of keeping good people is how you treat your people. And, and, and being a motivator and, and, and all the things above. And, uh, and, and that's what Roger is so good at, you know, just the way he treats his employees, you know, the way he motivates everybody to be involved and be a part of. And, and it, it, it just makes everybody dig a little deeper, you know. And that is what ends up creating the result to get you the, the, the results you need and the wins. Mike, earlier today, before I actually went to a thing with Errol McLaren SP this evening, which was a very neat event in Speedway, in our final minute here, Mike, I just simply want to say this. I think you'll agree. Um, I went to an event for kind of a, a saying goodbye at Crown Hill Cemetery to Bob Jenkins, who I have always said has a great disparity between his level of accomplishment and his sense of his accomplishment because he's so humble. Rick Mears is the Bob Jenkins of drivers. Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. He's incredibly humble, incredibly gracious with his time. And like that long answer we gave, uh, uh, played earlier from about 1991. I mean, he gave me all that time to on that one question, which was incredibly gracious of his time. So I agree with you 100% on that. Tomorrow night, we will profile Al Unser Jr. as we continue our run, if you will, of multiple winners in the Indianapolis 500 mile race. Of course, tomorrow is carb day. I don't care what the forecast says. The forecast, at least, is going to be fun. The final practice, weather permitting, concert, and we will be live for this radio station from 7 a.m. until 10. Myself and Kevin Bowen on Kevin and Query, then Dan Dockich in the midday, and JMV beginning at 3 o'clock. You folks have a wonderful night. We look forward to seeing you on Carb Day. This has been Beyond the Bricks.